Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Today, Peter and I will be discussing plant-based proteins or high-protein crops, not alternative proteins. So, Michelle, when you use those three different phrases, can can you... Define the last one a little bit more for me as the plant person, and and I'm not as familiar with it. Sure. Uh, In the news, a lot of times right now, we're seeing talk of alternative proteins, and this might be something like an Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat. So a generally pea-based or soy-based burger that is uh, not from meat. So that might be one use of an alternative protein. And another use would be a lab-grown meat. So in this episode, we're going to focus specifically on crops that are high protein uh, that small and medium-sized growers can grow. Uh, And Peter really brought this topic to my attention when we were talking about some of the news in what's going on with uh, packing plants and potential meat shortages in the future. So if we are seeing meat shortages if lack of protein is in the news, it might be a really good opportunity for small and medium-sized growers to grow vegetables and crops that Americans can replace their high meat diets with. And Michelle, I think it's important for us to uh, put, put out there at the beginning of our conversation today that we're not necessarily advising people to go vegetarian completely or vegan in this discussion. We're merely saying if there is a shortage in meat and there is less meat on the dinner table from night to night, here are some vegetable crops that can help replace, supplement, complement that protein that we might be missing in the uh, chicken or the beef or the pork. Does that sound reasonable? It does. I think that there's a good chance that we will see higher meat prices and following a recession with 30 plus million people without jobs, there might be less meat that people can afford to purchase. So it might be like that or just the number of meals that include meat. So when As an animal science major, I think the number at the time was 24 meals a week. Americans, on average, had meat in them. Uh, So we could just see a reduction in that number of meals. So I agree. This isn't about pushing vegetarianism. It's it's, uh, talking about a diversified diet. And people know that they can get protein from dairy products and meats, uh, but what are some of those crops and how are they going to fit on your farm? And a great point, Michelle, and another way that we complement one another, you also, in addition to your economics training, just mentioned your plant science, I mean, your, your animal science training. 
and we know my mine is on the plant science side of things. So confirm for me when I was in my undergraduate studies, we were taught that the crops grown and fed to the animals, and then the animals harvested and eaten as meat. That system we were taught is 90% wasteful. In, in other words, if we eat the crops that we feed the animals in terms of nutrition, calories, energy, etc., um, it's, it's um, much more efficient on a global scale. Have you come across any numbers like that? So I've actually seen arguments on both sides, and I was talking about this on one of our nightly walks last week, that I didn't have a good number to prove or disprove that. Um, I would say two things. One, I understand that we grow 180 million acres of crops that are mostly fed to uh, livestock. So I'm not arguing that there's not a lot of land that um, could be used for diversified crops. Uh, but I have two thoughts on it. One, that there are lots of animal byproducts, sorry, there are lots of plant byproducts that are fed to animals. So cows love grapefruit rinds. So when you make your juices and have those leftover rinds or pulps, a lot of that is upcycled into um, livestock feed. So there are some efficiencies and some products that we don't eat that are eventually fed to livestock, uh, which does make eating meat slightly more environmentally friendly. Um, and the other side of it is, you know, you're not going to take meat away from people. There is an, an interest in eating it. And we see immediately that as incomes go up higher, quality diets uh, are the first thing that people spend their money on and that very quickly we see more meat added into the diet. Uh, so I don't know which, I do not know per acre which way is more efficient, um, but those are some of the places uh, that, that livestock do make other products that we eat more efficient. That, I enjoy your insights on topics like this, Michelle. Now, my, my, I'm, I'm on the opposing side of it. As you're talking about the grapefruit rinds, I'm thinking, well, as we learn more about the science of organic growing and compost teas and using any of, of uh, or uh, composting any plant waste, I'm, I'm hearing that, or I'm thinking that there, there is an alternative for us to, to capitalize and recapture those, those nutrients. Um, so, so there, there, there are things that that we're going to uh, come come at from opposing angles. I think that's exciting, and we learn from one another. Um, and uh, one last point before we start talking about these higher protein crops: uh, in a past episode, you did describe to us how after crises, sometimes the changes that take place or market adjustments during the crisis sometimes they linger. And it may be that if today we're talking about uh, boosting a bit of the um, protein in the diet from plants rather uh, or during a, a meat shortage, I think what you said an episode or two ago is that maybe some of those habits will linger a bit and maybe we move the needle just a little bit closer to 
um, that veg vegetarian or plant-based diet. What do you think? I absolutely agree. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for disruption right now. And I think that the changes that we're seeing will largely affect how we eat and where we get our food from in the future. Uh, and so that happens a lot of places in the discussion we're going to have today, right? Do people start learning how to cook or an appreciation for some of the crops that we're look that we're talking about? I think there's a huge possibility of that. Are these uh, lower fat, higher fiber options that would increase overall health? Yes, I think there's a you know good possibility of more inclusion. Do we? Uh, change our food system, which I think is something that we're going to be talking about throughout these uh, episodes. It, is our food system going to dramatically change? And one of the places we talked about that led us to this podcast is, you know, is there an opportunity for small and medium-sized growers to be more in grocery stores or food service options that rely on a national distribution? And, you know, we, we talked about ways that that is possible. And I think we're now seeing that play out on the meat side. If four or five percent of all of our pork or beef or chicken come from one facility, if that goes on offline, what impact does that have on U.S. agriculture? So will there be a move away from those uh, high concentration pieces and into a more uh, diversified and spread out agriculture. Yes, I think there's huge potential. Uh, and I think this meat story will, I think that it's going to play out into vegetables. I think that a lot of the challenges that meat producers, it's possible that they will happen in vegetables as the summer progresses and we're harvesting more. So I think the same opportunities to change the system exist. And I hope that it's an opportunity for a lot of our growers. Sound good, partner. You want to dig into some of these crops? I'd love to. So when, when we're talking about crops, Michelle, that are high in protein, um, I did a little quick research and came up with a list that can serve us in this today's conversation. And I've categorized them in, in with some broad strokes. So these categories are not all inclusive, but here goes. There's a group of crops high in protein that I'm going to categorize as full season crops. And that, that group includes potatoes, yellow sweet corn, asparagus, and peas. And I re recognize peas are not a long-term crop, but it's kind of a tweener crop. So I'm putting that in that category. Then perhaps the most popular crop we're going to discuss in, in this conversation is the group of brassicas that include kale and broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, pak choy, and that that list is longer. Um, but just uh, for today's conversation, <clears throat> let's let's uh, limit it to to those uh, few: the kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, pak choy. And then my third category is is I'm calling greens or leafy greens, and this group includes spinach, the popular. Uh, um, most popular of, of this category, mustard greens, collard greens, watercress, alfalfa sprouts. So while 
We understand collard greens are also a brassica and putting them into this greens category more from a production um, classification. So does that all make sense? The, the categories are not um, specific and some crops belong to more than one category, but just for simplicity, that's how I decided to, to uh, divide them up. No, that helps a lot. And, you know, I think it by dividing it into those quick season and full season is really helpful, um, as well as the brassicas and leafy greens, because I would assume that for growers, that means something. I would guess that the average person in the grocery store could not tell you which ones were brassicas. Um, and maybe in our notes, we should include that that uh, beautiful picture of all the brassicas brassicas um, so that, you know, we could visualize it. But if that makes sense, I'll defer to you from the grower perspective. If that makes sense in how, you know, you are thinking about what to grow, how to schedule your crops, uh, those pieces, that works for me. Okay, that's good. I I just want to welcome in our listeners and uh, they're going to have Uh, As growers, they're going to have their own classifications or they might put a particular crop in in one that I don't have. And I just want everybody to feel comfortable that uh, these are not um, specific definitions. It's just conversation starter. And as you are listening to this discussion, if you want to either, you know, comment on by getting in touch with one of us or posting in any of the forums that you've seen this. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. We'd love to hear about how you classify your crops and why and how that makes a difference. Yes, there is a place to start. And, and you know, as this conversation is unfolding, uh, Michelle, um, I, I would already um, kind of shift around some of the categories the way I quickly define them. And I think we know that uh, kale is a quick crop, pak choy is fairly quick. So perhaps my adjective is uh, could be improved because Brussels sprouts is a full season crop, cauliflower and broccoli take a little longer. So again, this is just to be a conversation starter. I think uh, rather than calling it the category quick crops, let's proceed with that group and just say the brassica group. And then we could probably jump down and and call the spinach and the greens and the sprouts more of a quick crop. How do you how do you feel about that? That sounds good to me. So is with this um, realignment of the crops, are we at a place where most people can still grow the brassicas? Yes, absolutely. The first of May um, here in Massachusetts, uh, we've had a a, a late spring. Um, I mean, you and I would say that we haven't had a spring at all. We've, we and, and we might have one of those years where we go from winter to summer in in uh, you know three days. So we've heard from farmers in the area that uh, have are delayed and late getting out into the fields because they're wet and can't plow and work the soil. So in that situation um, we still have time to make an have an effect on on the crop scheduling Um, and we did talk about some of the intricacies of scheduling crops accurately and you know you and i have tossed around um, whether we want to grow a lot to make sure everybody gets what they want to buy and dump the extra or 
uh, grow a little lean and short so that we sell out and maximize our, our profit. Uh, there's a lot of work being done during the crisis with food banks and excess production. So I know you have much to um, contribute on, on that topic. But to, to answer your question, yes, we can still make adjustments. And uh, on the crops that are less than full season, uh, they will usually require multiple or lend themselves to multiple slash successive sowings and plantings. So anytime we have that type of crop where we're going to, um, I think in our last episode, we used radish as the example. Maybe today we'll use kale, Michelle, because it's the quickest turnaround of the group of brassicas that we're talking about. So if we're going to have multiple sowings and crops of kale, yes, we absolutely have that kind of control still during the first week of May. It, it may be for growers in more southern regions. Um, you grew up in the mid-Atlantic uh, area, uh, Maryland, if I remember correctly. Uh, they've probably already been out in the fields and sown their early crops. So in that instance, no, they're not going to affect the first sowing, but they still do have some flexibility in successive sowings. So I don't know if this is a question for myself or for you, but if somebody is scrambling now to say, wow, this is an opportunity, maybe I can grow more of these brassicas or leafy greens, how do they pick which one? So I would argue, you know, that they probably shouldn't just watch the news or, you know, pull this idea like we did and said, high protein crops are important right now because there's concerns about protein shortages, they should still try to find markets for where they're going to sell and which one of those crops is the most popular. Uh, are there thoughts from your side on how to decide which one of these to grow? Is it the market? Is it what you're comfortable with? Are they very different from each other? Well, I, I, I listen to what you say when you talk about the demand being more important than the supply decision. So, and, and, and you and I have been discussing what some of the options are for our growers to get products to market. So the, I don't see an easy answer to the question. I see a layered answer where if a grower is selling X percent of his or her production through a CSA, a community supported agriculture program, then he or she is closer to the customers. And perhaps there's a mailer, mailer that goes out, a direct, direct mail to customers and participants that, that kind of lays this out and says, uh, gee, if, if, if you feel you're, you're going to have less meat to eat, uh, we'd like to respond and grow a little more of crops X, Y, and Z. Uh, so that's one way. If if we're dealing with restaurants, I think that one might be easier, Michelle, in that uh, the chefs and, and, and restaurant managers um, are very close. They've got their finger on the pulse here, and, and uh, they're probably more keenly aware of the meat supply. So... What do you what do you think? Do you think that avenue working with and through restaurateurs um, 
could be effective here? Yes, I think that talking to uh, restaurants, to chefs that you generally sell to, uh, to get their pulse would be helpful, um, you know, if that's an opportune, if that's an option. Unfortunately, you know, our restaurants and most of the restaurants in the country are still closed. And the risk of selling directly to food service right now is as the uh, restrictions are relaxed, if cases spike again, will there be another round of closing restaurants? And then how does that affect your business? Um, And so I know we talked about whether you should diversify or not. And I wonder whether, yes, being able to sell to a chef uh, is a great opportunity, but if you need to, you know, be careful and make sure that you are growing things that consumers want, because there is that risk that they're going to end there's a risk, it's almost more likely at this point, that the food is going to end up in someone's kitchen. Uh, and the example that jumps immediately to mind is that food service purchases a lot of uh, conventional spinach and households purchase a lot more organic spinach. And so that would be one of those shifts where even in the same crop, there's a different use, there's a different product depending on where it ultimately goes. Uh, And so if there is the risk of reduced food service, then do we need to have some part of our mind thinking, how is this something that people are comfortable cooking and how do they want it to show up in their house? And that goes into crop size or, you know, things like that. So, and, and we talk about layers and complexity. If, if we have uh, two local growers growing spinach, one organic and one conventional or traditional, um, I think what I'm hearing from you is perhaps the traditional grower might find the avenue of working through the restaurant a little more, uh, a little easier or more profitable, whereas the organic grower might um, choose to go directly to the consumer. Yes. Um, And I would add a caveat on sort of the organic example. I think that in a grocery store, the organic is what people are looking for. I don't think that most shoppers understand the organic label. Um, And if they are going to a farm, that having that local or seeing where it's grown uh, to them counts as being the same quality as organic. So understanding the production differences, I think, is out of the grasp of most consumers. I, I agree with that, Michelle. And, and uh, as, as an analogy, let, let's spend a minute. Um, when, when I'm in the grocery store these weeks during this crisis, with shortages showing up on the shelves, I'm finding that uh, if my um, preferred brand of butter or eggs are not on the shelf, for me, it's just, you know, get whatever's there. So is that also true in your mind uh, with the spinach in the grocery store, whether it's organic or not, are people a little less uh, picky right now during during the crisis? Absolutely. And um... This is a conversation I have a lot that Americans are 
very comfortable going to the grocery store and knowing that the product that they get will be safe um, and probably affordable. And so their concern is with these special designations or special brands uh, and being able to be picky. And I think that whether it's logistics, so trucking problems, labor problems, ingredient shortages, that there is going to be less variety um, and that we're going to have to shift into a what's available approach uh, to shopping in a grocery store. So I absolutely agree that you know some of those designations will will shift. Um, I think that on the eggs, we're used to buying uh, a carton of eggs. And right now, there are not enough cartons. Uh, so people might have to buy flats. I've seen more flats of eggs, kind of like you see at Costco, but also in uh, my local grocery store. So some of that packaging is shifting and people are comfortable because they you know, want to have those products. Uh, so those are some of the places, but on the vegetable side, I would just want to, you know, make sure that, that it is something that somebody could right? So the packaging might be different. The label might be different. Um, but I don't have a good example, but is it something that they can cook with in their house? Is it a size that they can use? Is there, um, sort of those pieces of it, you know, still making sure that it is the version of a product that, that, um, that people can cook in their kitchen or cut up in their kitchen and eat. You know, this discussion, Michelle, is, is fascinating to me at a, at a, a, a different level. And that is um, you and I are consumers. All of our listeners are farmers and greenhouse operators are consumers so we're we're all living and breathing the the principles that we're discussing here, and whether it's the eggs that you're describing, the spinach or the the, the butter, um, it it's uh, fascinates me that that we're all uh, living through this, and I think it's worth us repeating from episode to episode um, the how how consumers view local production. And a close colleague of mine who is a horticultural marketing researcher at Michigan State University has shown in her research over uh, several decades that in the consumer's mind, um, locally grown is much more important to them than organic. And that's not um, diminishing the uh, attractiveness of, of organic, but doesn't it play into everything you and I are uh, discussing in these uh, episodes that we want to help the local farmers, our smaller farmers, react to the marketplace? Yes, for sure. I do think that understanding where your food is coming from, feeling like it came close, knowing that it's fresh, those things potentially meeting the farmer are super important to buyers. I think that that message will be even stronger in the coming months because um, in a recession, there is more of a focus on your community and people you know. And by keeping the dollars in your community, 
there is a very strong multiplier effect and it helps the community at large. So I think that when people have the choice uh, that they are more interested in supporting the local economy, I think that if people have the choice to go to a grocery store, which is not a particularly positive experience right now, or spending a sunny day driving to a farm stand, um, that all of those preferences will be in favor of the farm stand. Uh, so I do think that it is a big opportunity, but for growers that are not used to dealing with consumers or have grow one product that they sell to a restaurant, this is completely turning their world upside down. Um, and that's a lot of the things we were hoping to touch on. And Michelle, as, as we kind of um, wind, wind down this episode and, and offer our closing thoughts, um, let, let me uh, make clear, as you and I have done in the past, this, this podcast is not a how to grow um, podcast. So we're not here. You're not asking me to talk about culture of growing kale versus alfalfa sprouts. That's not our intent. That's a podcast off for another day, correct? We're, we're talking about not how to grow it, but perhaps what to grow and why to grow different amounts of it, correct? Correct. And so in that, as I complete um, uh, or, or, or make my final comments, Michelle, uh, kind of a, a, a more fun, uh, imaginative spin to put on the discussion, um, we've defined our growers or our target growers as traditional field farmers, greenhouse growers, and indoor vertical farmers. And I can report to you as, as I was doing some research and coming up with these, these uh, various lists of high protein or plant-based protein crops, um, in my backyard research greenhouse today, Michelle, I have peas growing uh, in a flood and drain irrigation system. I have kale being harvested in a nutrient film channel system. Um, I've planted broccoli. I have spinach, greens. Um, so, so we are not just talking about the field production. I want to make that clear. We're, we're inviting our greenhouse operators and our newest uh, farming um, category, the vertical farmers, into discussions, conversations like this so that we can imagine the future of our food production systems. That is a great way to wrap up. Thank you very much for leading the conversation today. Um, it is a very different experience being on the question versus the answer side. So it's nice that we get to mix it up sometimes. That's how we work together. The grower and the economist, right? Yes. Thank you very much.